Agape Out of Time, an After the Plot short, written and read by Brent Lacey. Heat distribution, 70%. Continuity threshold, 65%. Dampening coils, approaching critical level. A readout on the dashboard pops from a shorted-out circuit, and sparks fly into the young scientist's face. And he is very glad he remembered to wear safety goggles for this test run. While everything is going mostly well, he still doesn't think there is enough power in the system to break the chronophysical barrier, and plus, it's starting to get hot in here. No matter, if the runoff heat stops dissipating, he can simply sever the connection, break the field, and then return to his own space-time somewhere between 1 and 60 minutes from when he currently is. The past half-dozen test runs have been severed the same way, but he was hoping this one would finally break the barrier and his pod would materialize in the foreign space-time, exactly 3600 seconds before the test ran began. He has gone through the checklist several dozen times. Should this run be successful, there would be several samples to take and tests to perform. After they would be completed, he would reignite the chronomatrix, hop forward exactly one hour, back to his native space-time, with a delta of however much time he spends running tests. Don't open the pod, don't touch anything in the past, and for God's sake, don't talk to your past self. Apparently, it is not in the cards for this run, which makes sense because an hour ago, he would have seen a future version of himself when he was configuring the test platform, which he didn't. No matter. He can recalibrate the change capacitance matrix and try again. He reaches toward the amplification knob to turn it down and conclude the test run, only the knob is unresponsive, or rather it's too responsive, spinning freely on its axis. That must have been what shorted out, sending sparks into his face. The scientist scrunches his face up, the glow of the pod's light blue dashboard reflecting in his safety goggles. This could be a problem, he thinks. Without being able to dampen the amplification on the change capacitance matrix, the waste heat from the friction in the time stream will continue to build until, well, until the fuselage of the pod is compromised and he's flung out into the time stream with no protection. Or until he passes out from heat stroke, whichever happens first. Cheerful. His handful of years in the lab as a postdoc have taught him to keep his initial lizard brain impulses in check, at least during an experiment. Solve the problem now, he thinks. Panic later. However, as time ticks by, his mind continues to come up empty-handed. There was a direct mechanical link between the knob and the chronometric throttle. He knew better than to rely too much on electrons and wires which were dependent upon the flow of time in a time travel experiment. Maybe if he got out of the pod, climbed over to the rear, and manually recalibrated it? Does oxygen even exist extratemporally? He thinks, that wasn't part of the initial calculations. It might be a long time to hold his breath, if not. Fortunately for our young scientist, fate should see it differently today. The heatsink finally rattles and kicks into gear, converting the buildup of friction to visible red heat bleeding off into the time stream. The hazy mist at first builds, clouding his vision through the porthole of the pod, then slowly begins to clear, and he feels the pod touch down. It isn't really touching down anywhere, it never left the pad in the laboratory, just should have gone back an hour. but. Wait, this isn't the lab. 
The gray-red haze continues to dissipate until he realizes he is in a parking lot? Craning his neck upward, he can see through the roof porthole of the pod that he is under a street lamp. The only sounds he hears are the slow tick-tick-tick of the pod as it cools and the harsh halogen buzz of the street lamp, as well as his own heart pounding in his ears. Well, he thinks, this wasn't part of the plan. How did the pod leave the lab? There isn't even any type of propulsion system installed on it. It was only built to move through time. Slowly, a faint green glow begins to show through the clearing fog. He removes his safety goggles and squints. A neon sign comes into focus. Café or du temps. French? He doesn't know French. As he has that thought, the gray-red haze has completely cleared, and he can see that the neon sign is attached to a standalone building. It is long and narrow, as if it should be sandwiched between other buildings of the same shape. Soft yellow light shines through the small, dirty windows on either side of an oversized black door. The young scientist drums his fingers on the dash of the pod and pensively considers his options. The experiment was only supposed to move him back 60 minutes in his lab. The time transfer process encapsulates two identically sized spheres of space-time and transposes them, so when he arrives in the past, an empty bubble of our younger air should have subsequently arrived an hour into its future. The fact that he is now outside a rundown French cafe was not part of the plan. Ah, the hell with it, he thinks, which is very unscientist of him, and opens the pod door. Holding his breath, he waits for the atmosphere outside to mix with that of the pod. Then he takes a little sniff. <laughs> Smells like parking lot. Asphalt, dried motor oil, maybe a lingering hint of petrichor from a drizzle, he thinks. But at least it's oxygen. With that thought, he unbuckles and emerges into the dark. He racks his brain for a mental image of this cafe. Is he somewhere near the lab? He doesn't remember any cafe like this downtown near the campus. Turning in a full circle, he surveys the strange landscape. Apart from the cafe and the street lamp, there is nothing. No other buildings, no other people. No sun, no stars, nothing. Which is, to say the least, quite odd. He walks to the edge of his circle of visibility and stares out into the darkness, straining his eyes to see the nearest building, and he is almost able to barely make out a light several dozen meters into the darkness. Perhaps he is in a dense bank of fog, which would explain the lack of stars, but then why is he even outside the laboratory in the first place? He screws up his courage to step into the darkness and begins to quickly jog towards the faint distant light. But before he is even halfway to the mysterious light source, he realizes the enormity of his predicament because he can discern what the light actually is. It is another street lamp, next to another cafe. Only, it isn't another cafe. It is the same one, for his pod is in the parking lot, in the same spot. A momentary lapse of madness overtakes him, and he sprints to this other pod. The door is still open, the seat belt is unbuckled, and the dash is still cracked in the same position. This is the same pod, he thinks. Ever the academic, he tests this hypothesis by jogging through four or five cones of light before he becomes winded, each of them containing the same cafe and the same pod. 
Apparently, this micro-universe has a border which curves back on itself, making it impossible to simply walk out of this location. At least in three dimensions, anyway. Well, that certainly can't be good, he thinks to himself. It is just then that he notices, far off in the corner of the parking lot, barely peeking through the edge of the yellow cone of light from the buzzing halogen parking lamp, four other shapes. The scientist slowly walks towards them. At first, he thinks they are cars, such as his location would suggest. Getting closer, he realizes they are not cars, but four other pods, two of which are very similar to his own, and his first thought is of righteous, indignant jealousy. All the time, money, effort, blood, sweat, and tears he has poured into this project over five years, and the university is secretly funding four other temporal transpositioning projects? Was it Patel? Or maybe Stevenson? She's always been interested in one-upping him. That snake. The only thing keeping his jealousy from boiling over is his curiosity regarding his location. If the project was botched, were the projects of his four clandestine competitors also botched? Be it curiosity or vindictiveness, the young scientist is motivated to enter the cafe. Stepping up the one large stone stair, he opens the large black oak door, having to brace his frame behind its deceptive weight, and steps in. Years from now, he will tell himself, and others, that the music was the first part of the cafe which reached him that the gentle, warbling voice of Edith Piaf surrounded him and welcomed him into this next chapter of his life, much like how an old friend greets you after a long lapse in contact, and that the scent of the cafe was only secondary. But that isn't, and wasn't, and won't be the case. The scent of the cafe hit him before he even realized it. The molecules of herbaceous oils, luscious Maillard reaction byproducts, and pungent garlic and onions slammed into his olfactory receptors, and the signal was in his brain microseconds before the music even vibrated his eardrum. The scent pathways bypassing the hypothalamus and making a beeline straight for the cerebral cortex. He forms a scent memory before he even knew he was smelling something, as if his brain was primed for it and simply awaiting the proper stimulus. The music of Edith Piaf continues to swirl around him. The cafe was long and slender, with a soft yellow ambient light spilling out, bringing a celebratory holiday feel to it. A bar made of thick black ebony bisected the cafe from front to rear, the patrons on the right and the staff on the left. Emerging from the middle of the stone bar was a tall dessert display case its frosted glass obscuring the details of what lay inside or behind. The cafe extended towards the back with several other tables and patrons sitting, chatting, and dining. At the front of the cafe, just near the door he entered, stood the cash register and various merchandise sold by the cafe. Shirts, hats, tote bags, all embroidered with Café or du temps. Across the narrow width of the cafe, near the stools and chairs, were several shelves rife with newspapers and magazines. Apparently, the cafe didn't tidy up much. The scientist leaned over to get a glance at some of the dates and issues. Most were random dates within the past five years. A few related to important historical events he could recall. Various scientific breakthroughs, military engagements, pop culture references. His eyes followed the curve of the shelf as it wrapped around the corner of the tight cafe. 
The dates quickly shot past the present date by four or five years. The scientist squinted and adjusted his glasses, leaning in to examine this. Flipping through a few page corners, he found dates that stretched many decades into the future. A shiny, bright green, glossy magazine caught his eye. A copy of Homes and Gardens, dated summer 2062, volume 189, three decades from now. The main tagline on the cover read, 35 great indoor plants for low-G summer homes. His brow nodded in confusion. Hey, hon, they're in the back. A gravelly yet sweet voice interrupted his growing concern. Who? The scientist looked over his shoulder as he stood and asked, not only in reaction to the statement, but also of its messenger. A blonde woman, not much older than he, busied herself with rinsing glasses in a sink behind the bar. She wore a blue and white flannel shirt with the sleeves rolled to three quarters and faded green cargo pants. A light blue dish towel was tossed over one shoulder, and she wore Coke bottle glasses that made her eyes retreat into the recesses of her face. She looked up at the scientist in confusion, and he only returned an equally confused stare. The pause quickly approached the threshold of becoming socially awkward when a voice emerged from a person scooting around the narrow spot near the dessert case. Gracie, he's a 28. Gracie stood and began drying her hands on her dish towel. She was much taller than the scientist originally thought, taller even than he himself was. She turned her head down the bar towards the voice and the scientist followed her gaze to see an older man eyeballing the desserts in the case. Although the cafe was dimly lit, he seemed vaguely familiar to the scientist. The older man tapped the glass with his fingertip. And can I get a slice of this delicious carrot cake next time you come back to the booth? Of course. And can you ask Shimmy if he can- I know, I know, broil it just until the icing starts to melt. The older man looked towards her and grinned. <laughs> You're a treasure, Gracie. He then looked towards the scientist, and the feeling of recognition grew within him. The angle of the old man's glasses caught one of the dim lamps lighting the cafe, and the young scientist was unable to see the old man's eyes behind the glare. Well, Come on back, 28, he said as he turned around and began scooting and shuffling between tables back towards the rear of the cafe. The young scientist adjusted his own glasses to get a better look at the old fella. He looked to be about the same size as the scientist, although a little wider around the midsection. He had a full head of hair, although it was peppered with gray. His clothing was nondescript, simple khaki slacks and a forest green tweed jacket with dark brown elbow pads. Although the cafe was small and cramped, the young scientist struggled to keep pace with the old man as he delicately stepped behind, between, and around the tall tables and chairs, as if this were a well-rehearsed dance. In the short trip to the rear of the cafe, the young scientist took note of the details. One wall, the one opposite the bar, was lined with tall cabinets of dark red wine. He noticed the tall tables were communal. One hosted a large party, celebrating something, and the other contained two couples and a solo diner, all keeping to their own corner of the table. They paid him no mind. If at the door to the cafe, the aroma was thick, here in the middle, it was nearly a viscous, heady fluid he had to swim through. Half a dozen pots of fondue bubbled at the tables in the bar. Diners stood on the base of their chairs, craning their necks over the steaming pots to poke and stir. The scent of garlic, frying oil, saffron, cooking beef, coffee, vinegars, melting cheeses, and peppers cascaded over him in wave after wave, threatening to overwhelm him. For a brief moment, he forgot about the failed experiment, and became solely focused on acquiring something to eat from this cafe in the near future.
As the old man turned the corner, the young scientist was snapped back to reality. The Edith Piaf song faded, and the drippy bass line of a Peter Tosh number tripped over itself as it poured from the speakers. He came to the corner and squeezed past a second hidden bar, where two more customers were fretting over their pot of cheese fondue. Looking beyond them, he saw into the tiny galley of a kitchen. Long and thin, just like the dining hall, the air was thick with steam billowing from a multitude of pots along the stove. An enormously tall man in jeans and a dirty white apron hastily assembled plates of hot food much as a conductor would lead a symphony. Adjacent to him, a much younger man with a ponytail of dreadlocked hair clattered away, elbow deep in the dish pit. There he is. 38. Check your watch, see? On time as always. Dang, you weren't kidding. A cacophony of voices erupted from behind the young scientist. He turned in surprise as they quickly continued. Look at his face. 38. Pay up. What about him? He'll come around in a second. How, how was I supposed to know? 38. Pay up. You owe me in 58. 10 bucks. The young scientist found himself staring, wide-eyed, at a cramped booth of four men, one of whom was obviously an older version of the young scientist, and two others who... No, wait. They were all older versions of himself, all looking progressively older than the last, the hair of whom continued to go grayer and whiter. The party continued as the young scientist stood, dumbfounded and gobsmacked. Well, he recognizes me for sure. Remember, boys, remarked the second to the oldest, the one whom the young scientist had followed originally. The what count is eight. Did you ask for the carrot cake? Asked the eldest of the four, a shock of white hair filling out his head. Yes, replied the third oldest. And did you ask for it to be broiled the way I like? Yes, because I like it that way too. They gently tapped wine glasses. The four men were all of different ages, haircuts, and dressing styles, but clearly the same person. In the far recesses of the young scientist's mind, tickle of a whisper reminded him about this initially being a time travel experiment. A few potential horrors of realization started to crawl up his spine. Excuse me, Hunt, Gracie said as she physically shifted the young scientist to scoot by him towards the quartet. She held a pitcher of water in one hand and a plate of sizzling carrot cake in the other. As she set down the plate and refilled the water glasses, she asked everyone, More wine, y'all? The third version turned his attention and answered, Uh, one, uh, no, two, two more bottles of the Beaujolais, please, and I think another tray of veggies for the fondue. Y'all stirring the cheese? Yes, yes Gracie. Gracie. Are you sure? Because last time, who was it? She pointed towards two of the middle versions. You two. Forgot, and our poor dish boy was scraping out burnt cheese for half an hour. The two at whom she pointed cast their eyes down dejectedly. Yes, Gracie. At this point, Gracie turned to the young scientist. And what'll it be for you, hon? I... Vodka cassis, the youngest of the alternate versions said as he clapped the young scientist on the shoulder. We've had a hell of a day. What? He asked. That's one. Someone joked. The young scientist turned to see who it was, but everyone was back to chatting. He turned back to Gracie, but she was already gone. He began to feel lightheaded. Come now, have a seat, 28. With the booth completely full, he looked around for a spare chair. Why do you keep calling me that? He eventually snagged one from the edge of the bar. It's your age, genius. Be nice. He'll be fine, don't worry. 
Pour the lad a drink. I just ordered him a vodka cassis. You know the routine. That's true, I do. Well, I suppose it's time for introductions, said the youngest version of the four. I'm known colloquially as 38, and you, being a smart lad, can probably figure out the rest of the crew, he said as he gestured to the four older versions. Indeed, 48, 58, and 68. He nodded towards each as he said their name. The three newly identified individuals raised their glasses and said in unison, Respectively. 48 spoke next while he chewed a bit of smoked salmon and melon. 28. Tell us what you can deduce. You are a bright one. 28 took a deep breath and let it out with a short sigh. <laughs> well, he said as he eyeballed the table until deciding upon a slice of baguette and a small piece of soft white cheese. Collecting his thoughts, he bit into it. Cheese melted like butter. Brie? He asked, his thoughts briefly disrupted. 58 shook his head. Mm, Saint Nectaire. Well, 28 said as he chewed, You are all me, or at least I will become each of you. Don't fret about the tenses. We'll get to that eventually. Don't interrupt him. 28 continued. And so, if we are all the same person, from different points in the timeline, then the experiment must have worked. A murmur of mixed reaction was elicited from the group. And debatable. And if it worked, then I'm not dead, and this is an actual place somewhere in time. I think he's just about got- Oh, which reminds me, you owe me a rematch exclaimed 48 as he pulled out a small tablet and immediately began playing, with 58, a game of chess on a digital screen. 68 took a sip of wine and said, This is the cafe out of time. What? asked 28. Man. 38 shook his head. Did I really say what this much? 28 looked at him confused. What? It was then that Gracie came back around the corner, holding an overfilled plate piled high with fresh chopped veggies for the melting fondue, a small glass of hazy purple liquid for the scientist, and a tray of buttery, garlicky escargot for the table. The snails are on the house. Compliments of Shimmy. The oldest three of the quintet all raised their glasses in unison and shouted around the corner to the kitchen, Yay, Shimmy! Y'all good for now? asked Gracie. Mm-hmm. Nodded 58 his mouth already full of escargot and baguette. The five scientists, or rather the one scientist, dug in with a healthy veracity. There was still much of the appetizer platter remaining. Cold sliced salami and cured ham, cheeses ranging from crumbly and sharp to melty and unctuous, tart cherries and grapes, and a trio of Dijon mustards, each with their own distinctive bouquet. In the main pot, the melted fondue began to bubble and splatter. Five forks were arranged around it, and the scientists helped themselves. The mixture of raclette and gruyere cheese was punctuated by some type of clear liquor which imparted a deliciously sweet tang to each bite they took. The broccoli and carrots were crisp and dry and held the melted cheese beautifully. The tender escargot, swimming in a green butter mixture of garlic and parsley, snapped satisfyingly when bitten, much like the snap of a large grilled prawn. Even an item as simple as the baguette seemed otherworldly. There were fresh slices for the cold meats and cheeses, pillowy on the inside and crunchy on the outside, with a perfect amount of chew. There were also chunks of slightly stale bread for the fondue. After a day of being left out, the baguette became just tough enough to hold a mouthful of cheese without falling apart or putting up too much of a fight once bitten into. Every delicious bite from the feast was washed down with a sip of French wine or a gulp of Belgian ale. It was several minutes before anyone spoke again.
So, now what? Asked 28 as he wiped crumbs from his mouth. What do you mean? Asked 58. I mean, clearly the experiment worked. What do I do now? Does that count? 38 asked 48 to the side. No, just when he stammers it. He answered. What? 28 was confused. See, like that. Well? 58 tossed back the last of his wine. As far as what comes next, I'd say you should probably order dessert. What? Asked 28, his concentration and expectations once again thrown for a loop. They have the best carrot cake, said 58. We get it every time. Hang on, you mean to say this has all happened before, this little party? Well, of course. Right, 68? 58 turned toward the eldest member of the party. 68 set down his fondue fork, having consumed less than the younger scientist, and wiped his mouth. Yes, indeed, I've been here five times now. What I mean to say is, 28 continued, what do we do about us? Are we at any risk of creating a paradox? You know, if one of us were to say the wrong thing to someone else? For example, talking about different points in our respective lives. 48 chimed in. Glad. It's our life. Not much to share, is there? He held up his wine glass in mock conversation. Oh, do you remember that time we all got stuck on the Ferris wheel in primary school? There was a general murmur of agreement, and even 28 conceded that there wasn't much use in reminiscing one's own life with one's own self. What about giving some advice or insight from older to younger? You could try, said 58. It just won't make sense to the younger version. No context, added 48. Plus, 38 piped in. It doesn't really matter about advice, because you're going to do what you're going to do either way. How do you know? Asked 28. 48 and 58 answered in unison. Because, because you've, you've already, already done, done it. it. 28 chewed this response over momentarily, taking another small sip of his tart vodka cassis. A thought, now a question was forming in his head, but before he could find the right words, he was interrupted by Gracie, coming around the corner with an additional bottle of wine in each hand. There wasn't one, she said. What? He asked, startled. Sorry for the wait on the wine, y'all, she announced to the group as she set the bottles down and began uncorking them both. We were out of the Beaujolais and I had to go into the back and fetch a new case. She topped off everyone's glass, oldest to youngest. When she got to 28, she continued. You were about to ask about when the first of these little fondue parties between the five of y'all happened. Well, there wasn't a first one. How? 28 didn't know which part of that sentence was more confusing. The fact that there was no first party, or the fact that somehow he had already been here, and Gracie, and perhaps everyone else, already knew what he was going to say and do. How did you know what I was going to say? Gracie simply rolled her eyes, collected empty plates, and left. Well, we said this has already happened, 48 said. And you were obviously thinking, well, it had to start sometime, because that's what we would have thought. Indeed, it's what we did think when we were you. He turned to 68. But that's not the case, is it, 68? A general commotion broke out amongst some of the group. They became as giddy as children about to open birthday presents. Oh, I do love this part. Ooh, is it time? It truly does get better with age. At this point, 68 rose and began to address the group. While he sounded much the same as the others, indeed, he was, were, and is the others, his words were much more measured and deliberate. Slow, but not for the sake of being slow. Rather, it seemed that he was simply in no hurry to speak, as if he was delivering a speech, a speech which had been rehearsed time and time again. <clears throat> as I have said once tonight, 
This is my fifth party. I first came when I was your age, he said, looking at 28. And at first I didn't believe it was true, much as you do not believe it now. The null space-time pocket that also serves fantastic fondue? Surely not. Ten years later, I came back, as you have. He pointed to 38. If only to see if it was true or not. But it was, it is, and it will be. The same five people as before, still having fondue. The only difference being that I was ten years older, and now there was a younger version of me who showed up late and couldn't believe his eyes. During that second party, which I attended 30 years ago, I spent the first few hours being simply amazed at how exactly identical everything was, just as 38 has done this very night. I took note of the fact that 48 and 58 were excellent chess players, and thus I decided I should start to learn the game, so that I may be prepared at the subsequent party, which I was sure to attend. Of course, he chuckled and gestured with his wine glass towards 58. By the time I was 48, the new 58 had already been playing chess for 20 years, as he had also had the same idea when he was 38 and I was the 28, but I wasn't aware of that at the time, and so therefore I never stood a chance. Each and every time I have visited this place, the exact same party has taken place and the 68 of each party has given this same speech, which I have now heard four times over the course of 40 years and thus have had ample time to practice. At this point, 68 paused and looked forlorn. Sadly, there has never been a 78, or indeed any version of myself older than this 68. So I've grown to assume either means we die within the next ten years, or else something happens which convinces me not to come back. But I can't imagine what that would be, because each time I've attended, this has still been the best damn fondue I've ever had. He raised his glass, prompting each of them, including the young scientist, to do the same. To the cafe out of time. And they all responded in kind. To the, to the cafe, cafe out of time. time. Gracie approached as they settled back into their seats and their meal. She checked everyone's wine and made sure the cheese wasn't burning. A thought suddenly occurred to 28. From Gracie's perspective, was this only one party or several? Did it happen once or only once every 10 years? A sense of dread washed over him. Was she reliving this party every day? What about Gracie? He asked out loud. The others either didn't hear or took no notice. Gracie herself barely looked in his direction. Honestly, hon, if you work in food and beverage long enough, all the days start to blend together anyway. I barely even notice. She gave him a quick wink and a smirk and walked away with an empty bottle and two empty plates. 28 slowly shook his head in awe at the whole situation. Not even an hour ago, he was tinkering with flux capacitors and positronic matrices with a hydro spanner, and now, here he was sitting in a five-way, non-divergent recoupling event, and eating French food at that. He peered into his wine glass and wondered if they were breaking some temporal rule by bringing molecules of this place back to five different points in time. I can wrap my head around the whole null space-time pocket, he eventually said to 38. But why a French cafe? I don't get it. Where did that part come from? 38 shrugged, popped a bite of green honeydew melon into his mouth. 
some uh, temporal disturbance probably arced out and took a chunk of some other space-time. 28 was horrified at the thought. W wouldn't someone have noticed something like that? The crowd noticed 28's questioning and returned their attention towards him. 48 chuckled. Oh yes, we are most definitely royally screwing up something somewhere. Well, why haven't y'all fixed that? He stammered in the direction of 58 and 68. It didn't seem that I needed to, answered 68 calmly. What? 58 and 48 gave each other a knowing smirk. 38 simply rolled his eyes. As I've already explained, I first came here 40 years ago, and there was already a 68, as well as three other older versions of me. I can assume that 68 had also been coming here for 40 years. This party has always been happening. If it didn't cause reality-splitting loot by now, it isn't going to. Otherwise, it already would have. 28 chewed on a piece of cold salami while he mulled this over. The cognitive acrobatics he was having to perform in order to keep this together were slipping away from him, much like an itch in the center of your back that you just can't reach. So, he said, you all have already experienced this. Many times, answered 58. And you've all already been in my shoes? Once. One each, technically. Smartass. And so, all of you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> it seems so. Said 38. Uh, so far, you've repeated all my actions and words verbatim. 28 continued. And, okay, even if I decide on a sentence and then speak utter gibberish instead, you, you would still see that coming? Yes, sir. Intoned 68. Because this has already happened. Come on, let him figure it out. 48 gently ribbed 68. It's so much fun when he finally says it. So I have no free will. Asked 28. 58 bobbed his head between yes and no. Technically, you are the only one with free will. We all know how the whole thing plays out already. In that case, I believe there's only one thing to say. I believe you are correct, said 38. 28 stood, cleared his throat, and raised his glass, which, by the way, was topped off with the delicious Beaujolais. The other four did the same, and unbeknownst to 28, joined him in his toast, because they had had plenty of time to practice. To the cafe out of time. This has been the cafe out of time, an after the plot short. For more after the plot, find us at finalplank.com or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.